Hey folks, this episode of A Look Back is brought to you by Amazon. Go to consciouslivingnetwork.blogspot.com, click on the Amazon banner on the right side, and whatever you buy, a little piece will come back to this network, and it'll really help us out. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Conscious Living Network. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the first episode of A Look Back, where we look at some of the great moments in history. And today, for the first show, we're going to look back at ancient Rome. And this is going to be a seven-part series on Rome, the rise of Rome, and the history that surrounded it. The reason I'm doing Rome is I had a previous show and I just decided to do a complete overhaul. And what better way to start this you know new show than by talking about you know what what got me into podcasting to begin with. There's a great show you can find it on iTunes. It's readily available. And it's called Hardcore History. And that's what inspired me to start my own uh, history podcast. And the reason I call it A Look Back is because of the quote, the great quote that has been shared and quoted for years. It says, Those who refuse to remember the past are doomed. To repeat it and I really believe that and that's why I read a lot of history um, I try not to get into too much modern history I think the earliest I've got or the latest I've gotten was uh, Europe in World War two so you know 1940 1945 um, and that's about as late you know as, as current as, as I try and get just because I have a great love for ancient history and what better way to start than by talking about the one thing that really kept me going when it came to um, reading history. And that is um, ancient Rome. The rise of Rome, the rise of uh, the world power at that time. And there's a quote by a Roman historian. Um, I don't have the name right in front of me, but as we get to the series, as we get uh, more into it, um, I'll look for that name. And I'm fairly certain I have it somewhere in my notes that, that I have in front of me. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the quote goes like this. Quote, Remember, Roman, that it is for thee to rule the nations. This shall be thy task, to impose the ways of peace, to spare the vanquished, and to tame the proud by war. 
the accounts of the regal period known as the Roman Empire has come down overlaid with just so much myth and legend that not a lot of it can be verified. In fact, very few can be verified. Roman historians of later times after the quote, fall of the Roman Empire, they lacked authentic records. They relied on fabrications of a patriotic nature, talking about how great and how wonderful Rome was. Following this period, when a republic was established, Rome became a world power and emerged as an empire with extensive boundaries, almost controlling all of Europe. Let's start at 509 BC. As the Athenians in Greece saw the symbol of their city-state's democracy and culture in the rock-jutting Acropolis, so did the Romans view the Forum as a symbol of imperial grandeur. Temples were to be found there, but in contrast to the Acropolis, the Forum was dominated by secular buildings, basilicas used for judicial and other public business. The nearby Colosseum was used for gladiatorial shows, and the great palaces of the emperors rising on the neighboring Palatine Hill. While the Acropolis was crowned with statues to Athena, the Forum glorified in triumphal arches and columns, commemorating military conquests. Rome was the capital of a world state, extending from Britain down to the Euphrates, and its citizens were proud of their imperial mission. Although the buildings in the Forum appear fundamentally Greek in style, they are more monumental and sumptuous. There are two clues as to understanding the Romans. They borrowed much from the Greeks and others. They modified what they took and called it their own. Rome was a great intermediary, the bridge over which rich contributions of the ancient Near East, and especially Greece, to form the basis of modern Western civilization. The Romans replaced the anarchy of the Hellenistic Age with law and order and embraced the intellectual and artistic legacy of the conquered Greeks. As Roman Empire expanded, the legacy was spread westward throughout most of Europe. Yet Rome was more than an intermediary. For it made many important and original contributions to Western cultural life. Throughout a history that led from a simple farming community in the plain of Latium to a strong state that became the master of the Mediterranean world as well as Gaul, Britain, and part of Germany, the Romans met one challenge after another with practicality and efficiency. In the shadows of its marching legions went engineers and architects so that today, scattered throughout the lands that once were part of the Roman Empire, the remains of roads, walls, baths, basilicas, amphitheaters, and aqueducts offer convincing evidence of the Romans' practical skills. More lasting and far-reaching of all were Roman law and administration, for example, the separation of powers between magistrates, senate, and assembly. The checks and balances in Roman Republican constitution was models for the U.S. Constitution. The history of Rome extends from 753 B.C., the traditional date for the founding of the city by Romulus, Rome's legendary first king, to 476 A.D., 
when another Romulus, Romulus Augustulus, the last Roman emperor in the West, was deposed. The first period in this span of more than a thousand years ended in 509 BC with the expulsion of the seventh and last Roman king, Tarquin the Proud, and the establishment of a republic. Geography did much to shape the course of events in Italy. The Italian peninsula is 600 miles long, and it's about four times the size of Greece, and two-thirds that of California. A great mountainous backbone, the Apennines, run down almost the entire peninsula, but the land's not as rugged as Greece, and the mountains don't constitute a barrier to political unification. Unlike in Greece, a network of roads could be built to link the regions. Furthermore, the plain of Latium and its city Rome occupied a strategic position. It was easy to defend, and once the Romans had begun a career of conquest, they occupied a central position which made it difficult for their enemies to unite successfully against them. The strategic position of Rome was repeated on a larger scale by Italy itself. Italy juts into the Mediterranean almost at the center of the Great Sea, and once Italy was unified, its commanding position invited it to unify the entire Mediterranean world. Italy's best valleys and harbors are on the western slopes of the Apennines. The Italian peninsula faced west, not east, and for a long time, culture in Italy lagged behind that of Greece because cultural contact was long delayed. Both Greeks and Romans were offshoots of a common Indo-European stock, and the settlement of the Greek and Italian peninsula followed broad, parallel stages. Between the year 2000 and 1000 BC, when Indo-European peoples invaded the Aegean world, a western wing of this nomadic migration filtered into the Italian peninsula. Then inhabited by indigenous Neolithic tribes, the first invaders, skilled in the use of copper and bronze, settled in the Po Valley. Another wave of Indo-Europeans equipped with iron weapons and tools followed, and in time the newer and older settlers intermingled and spread throughout the peninsula. One group, the Latins, settled in the plain of Latium, in the lower valley of the Tiber River. For the ages, history has bypassed the western Mediterranean, but it was soon to become an increasingly significant area. During the 9th century BC, the Etruscans, a non-Indo-European people, who probably came from Asia Minor, brought the first city-state civilization to Italy. Expanding from the west up the Po Valley and south to the Bay of Naples, the Etruscans organized the backward Italic peoples into a loose confederation of Etruscan-dominated city-states. After 750 BC, Greek colonists migrated to southern Italy and Sicily, where they served as a protective buffer against powerful and prosperous Carthage, a Phoenician colony established in North Africa at about 800 BC. Yet the future was not to belong to these various invaders, but to an insignificant village on the Tiber River, then in the shadow of Etruscan expansion. This was Rome, destined to be the ruler of the ancient world. According to ancient legend, Rome was founded in the year 753 BC by the twin brothers Romulus and Remus, who were saved from death in their infancy by a she-wolf who sheltered and suckled them. According to Virgil's Aenid, that's A-E-N-E-I-D, Romulus' ancestor was Aenus, a Trojan, who after the fall of Troy founded the settlements in Latium. The Aenus story, invented by Greek mythmakers, pleased the Romans because it linked their history with that of the Greeks. 
Turning from fable to fact, modern scholars believe that in the 8th century BC, the inhabitants of some small Latin settlements on hills in the Tibor Valley united and established a common meeting place, the Forum, around which the city of Rome grew. Situated a convenient place for fording the river and protecting from invaders by the hills and marshes, Rome was strategically located. Nevertheless, the expanding Etruscans conquered Rome at about 625 BC, and under their tutelage, Rome became an important city-state, one of, if not the first. Some aspects of Etruscan culture were borrowed from the Greek colonies in southern Italy, and much of this, including the alphabet, was passed on to the conquered Romans. Etruscan writing can be read phonetically, but not understood. From their Etruscan overlords, Romans acquired some of their gods and the practices of prophesying by examining animal entrails and the flight of birds. For the conquerors, the conquered learned the art of building, especially the arch, the practice of making statues of their gods, and the staging of gladiatorial combat. Even the name Roma appears to be an Etruscan word. Rome's political growth followed a line of development similar to that of the Greek city-states, limited monarchy of the sort described by Homer, oligarchy, democracy, and then finally the permanent dictatorship of the Roman emperors. And we see that in moving from oligarchy to democracy, the Romans, unlike the Greeks, successfully and succeeded in avoiding the intermediate stage of tyranny. According to tradition, early Rome was ruled by kings elected by the people, and after the Etruscan conquest, this elective system continued. Although the last three of Rome's seven kings were Etruscan, the king's executive powers, both civil and military, was called the Imperium, which was symbolized by an axe bound in a bundle of rods. In the 1920s, the Fasces provided both the symbol and the name of Mussolini's political creed of fascism. Although the Imperium was conferred by a popular assembly made up of all arms-bearing citizens, the king turned for advice to a council of nobles called the Senate. Senators had lifelong tenure, and they and their families belonged to the patrician class. The other class of Romans, the plebeians, or the commoners, included small farmers, artisans, many clients, or dependents of patrician landowners. In return for a livelihood, the clients gave their patrician patrons political support in the assembly, blindly voting for what they said. The growth of Rome from a small city-state to a dominant power in the Mediterranean world in less than 400 years is a remarkable success story. Roman expansion was not deliberately planned. It was a result of dealing with unsettled conditions, first in Italy and then abroad, which were thought to threaten Rome's security. Rome also claimed that its wars were defensive. By, two, by 270 BC, the first phase of Roman expansion was over. Ringed by hostile people, the Etruscans in the north, predatory hill tribes in central Italy and Greeks in the south, Rome had subdued them after long, agonizing efforts and found itself master of all Italy south of the Po Valley. In the process, the Romans developed the administrative skills and traits of character, both fair-minded and ruthless, that would lead to the acquisition of an empire with possessions on three continents by 133 BC. 
Soon after ousting their Etruscan overlords in 509 BC, Rome and the Latin League, composed of other Latin people in Latium, entered into a defensive alliance with the Etruscans. This new combination was so successful that by the beginning of the 4th century BC, it had become the chief power in central Italy. But at this time, in 390 BC, a major disaster almost ended the history of Rome. A horde of marauding Celts, called Gauls by the Romans, invaded Italy from Central Europe, wiping out the Roman army and almost destroying the city by fire. The elderly members of the Senate, according to traditional accounts, sat awaiting their fate with quiet dignity before they were massacred. Only a garrison on the Capitoline Hill held out under siege. And after seven months and the receipt of a huge ransom in gold, the Gauls retired. The stubborn Romans rebuilt their city and protected it with a stone wall, part of which still stands today. They also remodeled their arms by replacing the solid line of fixed spears of the Phalanx formation, borrowed from the Etruscans and the Greeks, with the much more maneuverable small units of 120 men called maniples, armed with javelins instead of spears, and it would be 800 years before another barbarian army would be able to conquer the city of Rome. The Latin League grew alarmed at Rome's increasing strength, and war broke out between the former allies. With Rome's victory in 338 BC, the League was dissolved, and the Latin cities were forced to sign individual treaties with Rome. Thus the same year that saw the rise of Macedonia over Greece also saw the rise of a new power in Italy. Border clashes with aggressive highland Semnite tribes led to three fiercely fought wars and the extension of Roman frontiers to the Greek colonies in southern Italy by 290 BC. Fearing Roman conquest, the Greeks prepared for war and called in the Hellenistic Greek king Pyrrhus of Epirus, who dreamed of becoming a second Alexander the Great. Pyrrhus war elephants, unknown in Italy, twice routed the Romans, but at so heavy a cost that such a triumph is called a pirate victory. When a third battle failed to induce the Romans to make peace, Pyrrhus is reported to have remarked, quote, The discipline of these barbarians is not barbarous, end quote, and returned to his homeland. By 270 BC, the Roman armies have subdued the Greek city-states in southern Italy. Instead of slaughtering or enslaving their defeated foes, the Romans treated them fairly, in time creating a strong loyalty to Rome throughout the peninsula. Roman citizenship was a prized possession that was not extended to all people on the peninsula until the 1st century BC. Most defeated states were required to sign a treaty of alliance with Rome, which bound them to adhere to Rome's foreign policy and to supply troops for the Roman people. No tribute was required, and each allied state retained local self-government. Rome did, however, annex about one-fifth of the conquered lands, on which nearly 30 colonies were established by the year 270 B.C. After 270 B.C., only Carthage remained as Rome's rival in the west, 
and much more wealthy and populous than Rome, with a magnificent navy that controlled the western Mediterranean, and with a domain that included the northern coast of Africa, Sardinia, Corsica, western Sicily, parts of Spain. Carthage seemed more than a match for Rome. But Carthage was governed by a commercial aristocracy which hired mercenaries to do the fighting. In the long run, the lack of a local body and a loyal body of free citizens and allies such as Rome had proved to be Carthage's fatal weakness. The First Punic War, Punicus, which is Latin for Phoenician, broke out in 264 BC when Rome sought to oust a Carthaginian force that had occupied Messina on the northeastern tip of Sicily, just across from Roman Italy. According to Polybius, a Hellenistic Greek historian, the Romans, quote, felt it was absolutely necessary not to let Messina fall or to allow the Carthaginians to secure what would be like a bridge to enable them to cross into Italy, end quote. There's a book series by Polybius called The Histories. I'm actually waiting on the library to get those books in for me. Roman, its allies... Its Italian allies lost 200,000 men in disastrous naval engagements before Carthage sued for peace in 241 BC. Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica were annexed as the first provinces of Rome's overseas empire, governed and taxed in contrast to Rome's allies in Italy by Roman officials called proconsuls. Thwarted by this defeat, Carthage concentrated upon enlarging its empire in Spain. Rome's determination, that's the key thing, their determination to prevent this led to the greatest and most difficult war in Roman history. While both powers jockeyed for position, a young Carthaginian general named Hannibal precipitated the Second Punic War by attacking Saguntum, a small Spanish town claimed by Rome as an ally. Rome declared war, and Hannibal, seizing the initiative in 218 BC, led an army of about 40,000 men, 9,000 cavalry troops, and a detachment of African elephants across the Alps into Italy. Although the crossing had cost him nearly half of his men and almost all of his elephants, Hannibal defeated the Romes three times within three years. Hannibal's forces never matched those of the Romans in numbers. At Cannae, for example, where Hannibal won his greatest victory, some 70,000 Romans were wiped out by barely 50,000 Carthaginians. On the whole, Rome's allies remained loyal, a testimony to Rome's generous and statesmanlike treatment of its Italian subjects. Because the Romans controlled the seas, Hannibal received little aid from Carthage. Thus, Hannibal was unable to inflict a mortal blow against the Romans. The Romans finally had a general, Scipio, who was Hannibal's match in military strategy and who was bold enough to invade Africa. Forced to return home after 15 years spent on Italian soil, Hannibal clashed with Scipio's legends at Zama, where the Carthaginians suffered complete defeat. The power of Carthage was broken forever by a harsh treaty imposed in 201 BC, Carthage was forced to play a huge and pay a huge indemnity, disarm its forces, and turn Spain over to the Romans. Hannibal sought asylum 
in the Seleucid Empire, where he stirred up anti-Roman sentiment. The defeat of Carthage left Rome free to turn eastward and settle a score with Philip V of Macedonia. Fearful of the new colossus that had risen in the west, Philip had allied himself with Hannibal during the dark days of the war. Now in the year 200 BC, Rome was ready to act, following an appeal from Pergamum and Rhodes for aid in protecting these smaller Hellenistic states from Philip, who was advancing in the Aegean, and from the Seleucid Emperor, who was moving into Asia Minor. The heavy Macedonian phalanxes were no match. And in 197 BC, Philip was soundly defeated. His dreams of empire were ended when Rome deprived him of his warships and the things that he needed, the military bases in Greece especially. The Romans then proclaimed the independence of Greece, which was a big, big historical moment. And they were eulogized by the grateful Greeks for playing a role similar to that assumed by Americans 20 centuries later. Hard to think. There was one people in the world who would fight for others' liberties at another cost to its, its own peril. And with it not limiting its guarantees of freedom to its neighbors, to men of the immediate vicinity or to countries that lay close at hand, but ready to cross the sea that there might be no unjust empire anywhere, and that everywhere justice, right, and law might prevail. A few years later, Rome declared war on the Seleucid emperor who had moved into Greece, urged on by Hannibal and a few, let's just say, greedy Greek states that represented and resented, resented is more the right word, not represented, Rome's refusal to dismember Macedonia. The... How do I put it? The Romans forced the emperor to vacate Greece and Asia Minor, pay a huge indemnity, which is rather reparations, and give up his warships and war elephants. And the Seleucids were checked again in 168 BC when a Roman ultimatum halted their invasion of Egypt which became a Roman protectorate. A year later, Rome supported the Jews in their successful revolt against the Seleucids by addressing this message to the Seleucid ruler. Quote, Wherefore hast thou made thy yoke heavy upon our friends and confederates the Jews? If therefore they complain any more against thee, we will do them justice and fight with thee by sea and by land. Most of the East was now a Roman protectorate, the result of a policy in which Rome and Roman self-interests were mingled with idealism. But Roman idealism turned sour when anti-Romanism became widespread in Greece, particularly among the radical masses who resented Rome's support of conservative governments and the status quo in general. Uh, the Romans, for example, helped crush a socialist revolution in Sparta. The new policy was revealed in 146 BC when, after many Greeks had supported an attempted Macedonian revival, Rome destroyed Corinth, a hotbed of anti-Romanism, as an object lesson. It's not coincidental that the predominantly working class population of Corinth was anti-Roman, 
and that later, after the city was resettled, they would welcome Paul's teachings of Christ for a lengthy 18 months. The Romans also supported oligarchic factions in all Greek states and placed Greece under the watchful eye of the governor of Macedonia, which had become a Roman province two years earlier. In the West, meanwhile, Rome's hardening policies led to suspicion of Carthage's reviving prosperity and to a demand by extremists for war. Carthage delenda est. Carthage must be obliterated. Treacherously provoking the Third Punic Wars, the Romans besieged Carthage, which resisted heroically for three years. They destroyed the city in 146 BC, the same year they destroyed Corinth, and they annexed the territory as a province. In 133 BC, Rome acquired its first province in Asia, when the king of Pergmanum, dying without heir, bequeathed his kingdom to Rome. He feared that the discontented masses would revolt after his death unless Rome, with its reputation for maintaining law and order, in the interest of the propertied classes, took over. Rome accepted and then spent the next three years suppressing a proletarian revolution in the new province called Asia. With provinces in three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, the once obscure Roman Empire took its place in history, and they, rode, they, they now reign supreme in the ancient world. On the next show, we will get into the effects of Roman expansion. We will get into the late Republic, going from the year 133 B.C. to 30 B.C., and it'll start getting very, very interesting, I assure you. Somewhat of a short show today. The next show uh, next week will probably be a little bit longer. There's a lot of history to get into. But thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And just so you know, this show is brought to you by Amazon. If you go to consciouslivingnetwork.blogspot.com and anytime you want to shop at Amazon, go straight there. consciouslivingnetwork.blogspot.com and click on the Amazon banner on the right-hand side and continue your shopping as you normally would. And anything you buy... A little bit comes back to this network, and it really helps us out. So until next week, I'll see you guys later. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. And thanks for listening.